Welcome to Scrubcast, where we take a closer look at the research happening at Stanford University's Department of Surgery. I'm your host, Rachel Baker. Thank you for tuning in to our annual Home and Day episode, where we speak with the podium and poster winners. Our guests today are Drs. Seanick Adkar, Deshka Foster, Vivian Ho, and Kirby Alorda. This will be a two-part episode, with part one focusing on our basic and translational science winners. Let's start with you, Seanick. You are a vascular surgery resident currently doing your professional development time. How did you end up in Leaper Lab? Yeah, um, so I ended up in uh, Nick Leaper's lab kind of as a, as a result of many discussions with him. He's the chief of vascular medicine and guides a lot of the residents in terms of what kind of research they do. And I had a background in uh, wet lab and basic science research. I did a PhD during my medical training at Duke. And so, you know, after talking about the various options uh, and my interest in pursuing, you know, and having a vascular biology lab in the future, his vascular biology lab is a premier vascular lab at, on campus. And you get a lot of exciting projects and kind of lab members that were really excited and, and doing really great things. So we ultimately ended up deciding to join his lab. And the plan was to kind of be co-mentored by him and Dr. Derek Claren, who has a extensive background in computational genetics. He's done a lot of work that's very similar to the work that I presented at Holman, um, doing a genome-wide association of peripheral arterial disease and abdominal aortic aneurysms and DVT and many other vascular pathologies. So yeah, and so this this project kind of came came as a result of some of the neurosurgeons being interested in looking at intracranial aneurysms and the genetic uh, susceptibility to them. And they wanted to harness kind of Derek's computational and genetic powers, how it kind of felt to me. So this is a collaboration with the neurosurgeons and, and vascular surgeons and vascular medicine. I think we can often gain a lot of insight into how disease processes occur through genetics. People have these lifelong exposures to small changes caused by very little alterations in your DNA, and that can kind of guide us into as to what kind of therapeutic targets there may be uh, to treat various uh, complex diseases and traits. Well, so you won the Best Poster Award in the Basic Science category with the project titled Genome-Wide Association Study of Intracranial Aneurysms Reveals Shared Heritability with Aortic Aneurysms and Atherosclerosis. So did I say that right first? Yeah. Hey, amazing. <laughs> um, so help me, help me break this one down. Uh, there are a lot of big words in there. What is an intracranial aneurysm? So intracranial aneurysm is a dilation or, or ballooning of the vasculature in the brain, or the cerebrovasculature. Um, Got so, it. You know, this is just like all other aneurysms in the body, whether it's in the aorta or the femoral artery or whatever uh, or you have, where you have weakening of the wall. We're interested in studying those in the context of other types of aneurysms and vascular disease. I see. So you're looking at the aneurysms in the brain, and then you also looked at the aortic aneurysms. Those are the same deal, but in your aorta, yeah? Correct. Yeah. And aorta is that giant artery that runs down your trunk. Correct. Yeah. All the way, starting at your heart, uh, it goes all the way to 
your abdomen where it splits into your uh, vessels to feed your legs. And along that whole route gives, gives rise to the branches that go to the rest of your body. So, you know, generally important. Very important. Yep. <laughs> uh, okay. So atherosclerosis, my poor Latin translator in my brain says this is the thickening of arteries. Uh, to some extent, um, okay. it kind of it involves some thickening, but really it's it's kind of the formation of kind of plaque within the blood vessel. And there are many different kind of mechanisms in, at play in the development of atherosclerosis. But the basic idea is that, you know, in the context of hypercholesterolemia or, or, um, or you know, a state where you have too much uh, cholesterol or fatty lipids in your bloodstream, those start to invade the vascular wall uh, and form mm. these plaques that are kind of within the vessel. Uh, that in turn leads to an inflammatory response. You have immune cells coming in and trying to fix the problem, but instead they're polarized in a way where they actually make the problem worse much of the time. Oh, no. As a response to that, the vessel thickens mm. and that lesion continues to grow and it can cause blockages in that manner. Um, that becomes a problem for people when, when that happens in the coronary vasculature or even in the legs, in the vasculature of the legs, that can lead to... Peripheral artery disease? Correct. Yep. Peripheral arterial disease, and ultimately, its manifestation is you know critical limb-threatening ischemia, which leads to gangrene, right. and we treat with those with uh, amputation when it becomes end stage. The other thing that can happen is not only blocking the vessel, but it can actually the plaque can rupture, and that makes a clot, and the clot then travels downstream and can can cuts off circulation to things. Yes, and kind of kill the kill the tissue that it's a, you know the blood vessel supposed to feed. That sounds unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Unpleasant. So mm -hmm. the last term we have here is shared heritability, and that definitely sounds genetic. Sure. So let's put it all together. Yeah, sure. <laughs> How is this all working? How is this all working together here? Balloons, we've got blockages, we've got some genetic stuff. So we're, you know, we're interested in, in aneurysms as a whole. And there've been a lot of studies looking at the uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm, thoracic aortic aneurysm. And in order to better understand aneurysms in general, we were looking at intracranial aneurysms. Mm -hmm. so the way we do that is with the, what's called a genome-wide association study. And that's you know, using genomic data from hundreds of thousands of patients uh, without any kind of syndromic form of intracranial aneurysm. We find genetic variants. So these are just kind of single letter changes in your DNA that are associated with the disease, uh, in this case, cranial okay. aneurysm. And so once we do that type of study, we can have a list of all these variants that are, are you know, more prevalent in people with intracranial aneurysms, and we can compare and contrast that with uh, other kinds of diseases. So in this case, we were really most interested in the aortic aneurysms, where we saw a significant positive correlation between the two diseases. Ah. There's a lot of overlap in the loci. And the same, there's the same thing with atherosclerosis. There's a lot of overlap when you look at intracranial aneurysms and athero. So those three, these three kind of diseases are all related. Uh, and this mm -hmm. contrasts the thoracic aorta, which actually doesn't have a lot of overlap with atherosclerosis. So that's why we think you know, abdominal aortic aneurysms and intracranial aneurysms have something that's similar about them with athero. So that means that there's some places in your genome that are going to contribute to giving rise to 
that, that could give rise to all three types of diseases. Really interesting. So, I mean, like independent of me, like eating a cheeseburger every day? Right. So most of the clinical risk of developing intracranial aneurysm has been thought to be through uh, hypertension or smoking or eating cheeseburgers, mm. right? That's that's kind of the, yeah. the thought, your unhealthy lifestyle, especially with smoking and blood pressure. But we actually found that you can you can make a what's called a polygenic risk score and that that basically gives each of your each of the letters in your dna a score and if you sum the score up for an individual based on our the results of our GWAS you can find people who are more at risk for developing intracranial aneurysm while controlling for their blood pressure or smoking status so there is some inherent risk in your predisposition to in, intracranial aneurysms independent of your lifestyle choices. Crazy. Okay, so like if I'm the person, which I am, that actually wants to know if I am susceptible for intracranial aneurysms, do I go down to my local Shonic and say, draw some blood and you can tell me how bad my score is? That's uh, in theory possible. Um, especially with, with this resource. The problem, though, is that the expense of it is probably prohibitive for everyone to do that. Mm. That's the only kind of catch with, with one of these polygenic risk scores is uh, the clinical utility becomes becomes a little challenging if you're going to apply this to a large population because you have to you know, sequence their genome. So ultimately, in the future, when we do have all of our genome sequence, and we can use this to assess risk uh, for a certain people. Cool. That sounds like fun. Uh, well, so the question I'm asking everybody on this show is if you could give your younger self advice when you started this project, what would you say to you? Well, I think this project, I've been really fortunate to have you know, Dr. Claren, Dr. Derek Claren is the co mm -hmm. primary mentor on this project, even though I'm embedded in the Leaper Lab, he's really been guiding uh, on this. And I've been learning a lot doing computational genetics him. I wish I had done more of this early on. I think that a lot of projects and a lot of interesting research now depends on your ability to execute and, and write code well. Mm. And so I, I learned a lot of this during this year. Um, and I had you know, a very minimal background before, but you know, I kind of wish I had had more of a background. I could have gotten started a little bit quicker in in this line of research. I think if I had to start over again, or if I had to like think about myself five years ago and what I was doing then, I would have maybe tried to learn more computational genetics. And I think as a surgeon down the road, having the computational arm is going to be very valuable. The ability to pivot the initial cost of in, or investment into a project is much lower than than some of the wet lab basic science work, which, you know, mm -hmm. takes a lot longer. And in a sense is you have to invest a lot more of your money and effort at the beginning when you might actually, at the end of the day, just have kind of negative results to show. Got it. We're now going to speak with our podium presentation winner in the basic and translational science category, Dr. Deshka Foster. Deshka, this is actually your second time on the show. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Rachel, and thank you for the opportunity to join the podcast again. Last time we talked about cancer-associated fibroblasts, but your Holman presentation was on a completely different topic. 
what do you have for us today? Yeah, so definitely. And I'm excited to talk about my podium presentation, which was on a project concerning abdominal adhesions, which is definitely a different topic in that it's not cancer. <laughs> but just like associated fibroblasts, um, it's, you know, along the, the same line of the fibrosis continuum, which is really what we get very excited about. And all our work is focused on in the Longacre Lab. So in my mind, it's all kind of part of one larger story that's to really understand why fibrosis happens and what it's all about and how we can modulate it therapeutically. I love this, the fibrosis continuum. It sounds like something <laughs> out of like the Marvel Universe. <laughs> I love it. I love that it sounds that exciting. We 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 aim for that. I find it that exciting. <laughs> well, so what is an abdominal adhesion and where do they come from? So abdominal adhesions are scar tissue bands that form like following abdominal operations or intra-abdominal infections can cause them as well. And in our prior work, which was published in Nature Communications in 2020, I believe, showed that adhesions really are formed largely from local fibroblasts, mm. meaning fibroblasts that are already in the abdomen that are activated following injury. And again, this could be an operation or could be an infection or something else like that. We also showed that the source of these cells is primarily from the visceral rather than the parietal peritoneum, meaning the peritoneum that's over the structures in the abdomen, such as the bowel. Uh -huh. And this actually really makes sense because we see much worse adhesions following open abdominal operations, during which time the viscera are handled. There's time for the you know things to desiccate under the lights in the operating room with the abdomen open. And they're really more severe following, in general, following open operations rather than laparoscopic or robotic operation. So that was kind of the beginning of our work. And since then, we've just kind of continued to plug on this story and trying to get to the bottom of it. Cool. Adhesion makes me think of like tape, adhesives. And I'm, I'm generally <laughs> yeah. thinking I don't want all my organs and such sticking together. Correct? That is spot on. Exactly. And they, they are like they really are like really dense three-dimensional tape sticking everything together. Mm -hmm. And just like you said, it's not good to have everything sticking together. In, you know, problems that they can cause, you know, include small bowel obstructions, infertility, chronic pain. And then from a surgeon perspective, they really make repeat intra-abdominal operations more challenging. So each time you go back in, you make more scar tissue and, you know, it takes more time. It's more time that the patient's intubated. There's risk of bowel injury, et cetera. So for us, it's really a measurable issue. And actually the, the management of adhesive disease is estimated to cost more than $10 billion in the U.S. Oh. alone every year, just based on hospitalization. So it's truly a really big problem, even though kind of yeah. we don't maybe talk about it as much as we should. Yeah. Crazy. So I was reading the abstract, and it says that you developed an intraperitoneal formulation that suppresses the formation of these adhesions. So in you know my very non-scientific mind, I have a visual of someone smearing lotion on my insides, like before you sew me up. How, how far off am I, Iridashka? <laughs> you, you, are, you are quite close. Um, it's <laughs> not quite sunblock, but it's a good visual. I, I like that. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so we spent the last couple of years um, developing a formulation in collaboration with one of the biomaterials labs here Ooh. that can be 
literally placed in the abdomen and, and poured in just like you're describing at the end of a case with the goal of really preventing the adhesions from forming after the operation. It's not, it doesn't look quite like lotion, fortunately, because I think that people would be a little weirded out like that. But, but otherwise, it really, it's the same idea. Awesome. Okay. And so what's in this special lotion? And who is June? <laughs> Excellent question. So our prior work really identified the, the C-June signaling pathway, which is, you know, a canonical fibrosis pathway known to be activated in fibrosis in a lot of areas of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, our work really showed that this is activated in the context of abdominal adhesion formation. So the formulation we came up with is kind of trying to attack the problem from all angles. So we have a June inhibitor that's actually dissolved in a formulation that also in itself prevents adhesion. So we kind of have both a vehicle and a drug that are hopefully targeting our our adhesion formation. Awesome. Well, so when you presented this at Holman Day at the end of April, you showed us the results from your mouse models. Can you share any of the results from your large animal model? Yeah, definitely. It was kind of an auspicious time for me to have to present <laughs> because we were in the midst of beginning to a large animal model. And I obviously had normal scientist nervousness <laughs> about, oh gosh, will the next step pan out? So fortunately it has, and we've kind of done our preliminary experiments in a large animal model. And it looks promising, which is great. You know, it's always reassuring when you can go between species and really see consistent results. So we are excited about it. I have many months of data analysis to do now, which is a which is a very good spot to be in. It's always fun to analyze data that <laughs> that is positive data. So um, yeah, I look forward to kind of Awesome. And I'm looking forward to when you publish those results. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I, we, we are excited as well. Well, so the question I am asking everyone on this show is if you could give your younger self advice when you started this project, what would you say to you? As I near graduation from residency right now, I've kind of been reflecting on on such questions a little bit more than I do in my everyday life, you know, trying to take this moment and and, and mm-hmm. be in it, I guess. Um, yeah, be present. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I think that the thing I think about and the thing that's really come clear to me during my residency and the amount of time I've gotten to dedicate to research during this training time is really just that the most important thing is picking a project and really sticking with it. Mm. Um, So I kind of came across the adhesions question, not randomly, but a little bit randomly, like someone else was interested in it and they were leaving the lab, which was Clem Marshall, who was one of the, one of the prior research residents. I know. (laughs) And then um, he kind of passed off the little bit that he'd done so far and let me roll with it. And I was in the right place at the right time. And also, Mm. you know, really the takeaway for me was just, that I was able to keep plugging away on this project over the past now, to be honest, like I've been working on this project for six years, um, maybe a little bit more. And I think that that it's almost matters a little bit less what the project is, although this is obviously a really important topic in general Mm -hmm. surgery and something that I think is not really studied adequately. But I think part of it is also just picking something and sticking with it and becoming, you know, someone who understands what's going on and that you keep asking questions and just keep plugging away. It's fun at the end of the day to really have something that feels a little bit like your own and something that you've made a contribution towards. So that would be my advice is to people going into the lab now, or I don't know, who are in the middle of their lab time is just, you know, to pick something and really try to focus on it and, and keep plugging away on it, even when there's hiccups (laughs) or when, 
you know, when everything's not coming together, I think that's kind of the moments to just like, see what you want at the end and keep trying because it's it's worthwhile. Awesome. Great advice. (laughs) Well, that brings us to the end of part one of our annual Holman Day episode. Tune in to part two for interviews with our poster and podium winners in the clinical, educational, and health services research category, Drs. Vivian Ho and Kirby Yolorda. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Rachel. Pleasure to be here. Great. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Scrubcast is a production of Stanford University's Department of Surgery. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Baker. The music is by Midnight Rounds. And our chair is Dr. Mary Hahn.